0: God, how wonderful, how wonderful it will be to be in the kingdom where Christ is the King, the deep, deep love of the King who will reign over us. God, we want, we yearn uh, to be there under him, with him, to see him ruling as God, to see God face to face and to be loved by you, and to love you. God, one thing we ask, and this we seek, that we might gaze upon your beauty. God, I pray that you would show us. God, give us supernatural grace to see, to behold the glory of Christ, and then to be transformed into that same image. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. What does it look like to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean to live as a Christian? Uh, Of course, if we get into particulars, it means a lot of things, but thinking big picture with me, generally speaking, what is the essence of the Christian life? I'm going to try and answer that from Mark's gospel today. Uh, In Mark, how does Jesus himself describe what the life of his followers should look like? Uh, So I'm going to try and give an answer by tracing some of the contours of how Jesus discipled his own disciples. And specifically, we'll find this. Jesus did not reveal the essence of the Christian life until he revealed his own mission to his disciples. And he did not reveal his mission to his disciples until he revealed his identity to them. First his identity, then his mission, then the nature of the Christian life, the nature of discipleship. And this ordering, uh, this pedagogy is purposeful and necessary And so we'll work our way toward a climactic statement in Mark about discipleship. Discipleship not in the sense of you helping others to follow Jesus, but discipleship in the sense of you being a disciple yourself. Uh, Perhaps better we could say we'll work our way toward this climactic statement by following Mark's presentation of Jesus' pattern of instruction. So three simple points today. And three profound points today, the identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and the one we're aiming for, the life of a Christian. I make all three points in order to make the last one, because that's how Jesus himself went about explaining the fundamental nature of the Christian life. So if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, let me tell you that what we're about to do is not usual for Calvary Bible Church. Usually for our sermons, we take one passage of Scripture, and we walk through verse by verse, talking about what it means, how it applies. And we do that in consecutive weeks, moving through an entire book of the Bible till we've preached every verse in a book of the Bible. Then we finish, and then we pick a new book, and we do the same. It's called expository preaching. It's glorious. Um, but we need to look at the Bible through narrow lenses, and we also need to look at the Bible through broad lenses. And so today... Uh, we'll do that with a broad lens in the gospel of Mark. You'll be happy to know we will not cover every single verse, uh, but rather, like I said, just trace the theme of discipleship, especially in and as much as we see that, that the Christian life is rooted in the life and mission of Jesus himself, which is rooted in the identity of Jesus. And, and Mark, I think all of the Gospels make this point, but Mark especially, I think it is uh, breathtaking to see how the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to structure or arrange his gospel narrative in a particular way to teach this so explicitly. So we start where we must, where Jesus did, marching toward... The fundamental nature of the Christian life, or I think as I've titled it in your bulletin, the Christian life according to Christ, we start with the identity of Jesus. The identity of Jesus. How does Mark answer this? And when do the disciples get it? Well, in many ways, the main burden of the entire gospel of Mark, and every gospel for that matter, is answering this question. Who is Jesus? Uh, The scribes ask it. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who does this guy think he is? Uh, The scribes try and answer it. This guy is possessed by Beelzebub. The disciples ask it. Who is this that even the wind and sea obey him? The people of his hometown Nazareth ask it. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Do we understand who this guy is? King Herod wonders, and he tries to answer it. He hears, some say he's John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Others say he's Elijah. Others, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Herod concludes, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. In fact, in the very middle of the gospel, a passage we'll look at more intensely later, and it's the turning point of of all of Mark. Jesus asks this question directly to his disciples, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? Even at the end of the narrative, after Peter answers that question correctly, uh, this question, who is he? Who is he? Who is he? It's front and center. At his trial, Jesus is asked by Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? The high priest asks him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? So people talk to each other. Who is he? People ask him directly, who are you? Jesus asks other people, who do you say I am? So the Gospel of Mark asks this question, Jesus' identity, over and over and over. And, happily, the Gospel of Mark answers this question again and again and again. Uh, And I want to show you the three main ways that Mark answers this question, saying Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, and the Son of Man. And there's tremendous and glorious uh, overlap. In all three of these things. The Gospel of Mark opens like this the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And then, when Jesus first comes on the scene, he's baptized by John, and a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son. And then, right in the middle of the Gospel, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he's transfigured. And again, a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then at the end of the gospel, when a Roman centurion sees the way that he dies on the cross, he says, truly, this man is the son of God. The declaration of Jesus' identity that has come from heaven for the first time in the gospel, spoken from human lips. This Roman centurion. And if you're in Sunday school, uh, Jason talked about this. About how when the Roman centurion said, truly this man is the son of God, that title was reserved for Caesar alone in the Roman world. And so by saying that, he's saying Caesar is not king, this man is king. And the fact that the Roman centurion said it, to say this this is my king, this one, shows he was not just king of the Jews, but king of all the earth. Jesus is the Son of God. He's also identified as the Christ, verse 1-1 said. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ. Now, Christ is actually a, a title or an office that Jesus holds. And because he fulfilled that office, that, that word Christ became identified so closely with him that it starts to be used as you know, a proper noun to refer to him specifically and not just his office. Uh, but Christ simply means anointed one, uh, one who has oil poured on them. What is this tapping into? God promised David that a king would come from his line. Again, if you were in Sunday school, the Davidic covenant. God made a covenant with David to formally commit himself to fulfilling this promise that he would raise up a forever king, from the line of David, who would reign forever. And so just like David was anointed, he sent, God sent the prophet to anoint David with oil, to say, this is my choice for my king. This is the one I will establish as king. So too, the people of God begin to hope for the promised greater son of David, the promised greater king in the line of David. And the word Christ is applied to the hope for this greater king. The one who is publicly chosen and put forth by God who will reign over his people. And actually, Jesus' identification as the Son of God connects nicely with his identification as the Christ. Because when the Lord made his covenant promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, you want to write down that reference one of the most important chapters in the Bible, when the Lord makes this covenant to David, first he says, uh, what I've already summarized, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. He'll be a legitimate uh, part of your family tree. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then the Lord adds, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And so the Christ, the anointed king from David's line, ruling forever over a never-ending kingdom, will be called and treated by God as a son. So you see these titles overlap. Both signify, among other things, but, but where they overlap, they both signify that Jesus is the promised king born of David who will execute the very rule of God over Jesus' people in God's kingdom forever. It's amazing how God fulfills these promises, isn't it? The eternal son, God the son, becomes incarnate in the line of David. And this is how the gospel of Mark opens. I think there's only one uh, story in Mark that Jesus is not a part of, and it's the very beginning, right after the title, when John the Baptist is uh, acting as the forerunner of Christ, Jesus comes to be baptized by John. Jesus is baptized, and he comes up, and the Holy Spirit descends on him. This is God's public anointing of Jesus, saying, this is my chosen king, Isaiah had talked about how the the coming ruler from the line of David would be anointed with the Spirit. And no wonder then that right after that, Jesus goes into Galilee and starts beginning his ministry proclaiming, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. God's king has been anointed and here I stand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Uh, So, although Jesus did affirm that he was the Son of God and the Christ, he didn't reject. The main way he refers to himself throughout Mark is with neither title, but actually by calling himself the Son of Man. Now, this is not, as it might first appear, just a claim to being a fully human. It actually is right in line with, with what we've already talked about, Jesus as Son of God and Jesus as the Christ indicates. This title, Son of Man, is taken from Daniel 7. You want to write that down too. Daniel 7. Jason brought this up in Sunday school as well. Uh, There's this prophecy about the kingdom that will come, that will put an end to and swallow up all other kingdoms. And Daniel says, starting in verse 13 of chapter 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Okay, hold that phrase in mind. You'll see it again. The son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he, that is the son of man, he came to the ancient of days, God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Hear the echoes of the promise to David. Which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So the son of man also then refers to Jesus as one who will rule forever. Executing God's own rule over God's people in God's kingdom. How how do we know that when Jesus called himself the son of man, He was thinking about Daniel 7. Well, speaking to his disciples about the last days, in Mark 13, 26, Jesus said, You will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then on trial before his death, in chapter 14, 61, after the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Notice then also in this exchange with the high priest at his trial, the convergence of all three titles. The high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, the Son of God? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, and coming with the clouds of heaven. And so Mark pulls on these three threads from the Old Testament, and then he weaves them together because he rightly sees their significant overlap in their meaning and the hope they project. So uh, if you took these three titles, Son of God, Son of Man, Christ, and you made a Venn diagram with them. Some of you are really into that kind of thing. Um <laughs> They don't mean exactly the same thing, but there is an overlapping center, and that is this. Jesus is God's anointed king, God's son promised from David's line, who will have dominion that never ends. And who could reign over God's kingdom forever except one who is God himself? So when Jesus comes in power to reign, it is the Lord himself coming to reign. John the Baptist, as the forerunner of Jesus, announces the Lord's coming, prophesied in Isaiah 40 and following. So Jesus shows up, and here's the answer of who he is. He's the unrivaled king of the unending kingdom that will be established by God. So if you're a follower of Christ, that's who you follow. That's who you follow, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth forever and ever. What does that mean for you to follow such a king? It might not be what you're thinking. It wasn't what the disciples were thinking. Uh, So when do the disciples get this? Turn to chapter 8, 827. This is when Jesus asks the disciples directly, Do you get it? Do you know who I am? They do. Verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Verse 28, And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. 29, And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, "You are the Christ." Yes. They got it. They understand the identity of Jesus as the Christ. So now they're ready to live the Christian life and represent this king rightly and, and live as Jesus desires his followers to live, right? Wrong. Look at the next verse, verse 30. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. What? Why is mum the word? They got it right. They understand who he is. Jesus knows what we're about to see that though they understand his identity, they do not yet understand his mission. And so, therefore, they are not ready to represent him rightly, and they are not ready to follow him as he desires. And we see, actually, a similar thing at play when Jesus, earlier in the Gospel of Mark, is casting out demons. Do you know what the demons do in Mark when Jesus casts them out? They reveal his identity, and they get it right. 1.34, 1.34, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak. Here's the reason, because they knew him. Chapter 3, verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. The demons understood his identity rightly, but they could not and would not represent him rightly, and they would not follow after him in the way he desired. And so Jesus says, I don't want you going around telling people who I am. And he tells the disciples the same. I don't want you going around telling people who I am. Not yet. Because you also are not in a place right now to represent me rightly, to follow after me as I desire. Peter's about to make that clear. This begins our second main point, the mission of Jesus. Uh, Now that his identity is known, Jesus begins to teach them about his mission. And actually, these texts simultaneously will make our third main point. At the same time, the life of a Christian I'm sorry if that's confusing. Uh, That's just how it has to be because, as we'll see, the mission of Jesus is what gives shape to the Christian life. Uh, The gospel of Christ draws the blueprint for the Christian life according to Christ. Look with me now at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Wow. Not before this. Not until now, only now that they see him as God's anointed, everlasting king, he begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be, what? Killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Jesus says, Yes, wonderful. You got it. I am God's king. Now, let me tell you how I'm going to enact God's perfect and present rule. Uh, Here's how I'm going to go about it I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed, and in three days I'll rise again. And Peter is thrown way off by this. You can understand, empathize a little bit, right? The realization is sinking in this is the Christ. God's kingdom is at hand. Look at the rest of verse 32. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus, you don't understand. Didn't you hear what I just said about you? You're the Christ. Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. His identity now known, his mission now announced, Jesus now begins to teach about the life he desires the disciples to live. Look at verse 34. In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Peter, not only am I, the Christ, going to a cross, But if you will be my disciple, you're coming with me. The king is going to a cross, and everyone who desires to be with him in his kingdom has to follow him there. Sometimes we talk about the cross we have to bear, and and we talk like it's, uh, maybe we have a cold that week, or... Our child is uh, giving us a hard time or something. And we say these are the cross. that We all have a cross to bear. Um, when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, what he had in mind was the cross that he would suffer on for the everlasting good of God's people. Verse 35 confirms this understanding. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. When I say take up a cross and follow me, I don't mean, you know, deal with it when life's a little hard. I mean pick up the tool of execution by which you lose your life and come with me. Verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his own soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. It's amazing how this works out. Uh, Literally, literally. Peter ends up in a position later where he is ashamed of the Son of Man, seeking to literally save his own life because he literally does not want to follow Jesus taking up a cross. But in God's providence and because of God's faithfulness, one day Peter would follow Christ along those lines. So much could be said about these verses. Remember, we're going broad. We're going bird's eye. We've got other places to go. So suffice it for now to say these two things about the Christian life. Uh, One, what disciples of Jesus are called to do is modeled after the pattern of Jesus' own mission. Following a man on a mission to a cross requires you go to cross number two the christian life means unrivaled devotion to jesus if anyone will come after me he will be one who loses his life for my sake the disciples allegiance to christ is to be unsurpassed self is replaced with christ is the foundation for what you live for. Uh, So the Christian life at the heart of it is one who desires to give their first place loyalty and love to Him because they've tasted how good it is to be with Him. So they follow Him because they love Him more than they love their own life. Your steadfast love, O Lord, is better than life. So, the Christian life is altogether opposed to self preservation, self promotion, self gratification as the primary motivating forces. Instead, a Christian life looks like Jesus carrying the cross, giving yourself for the good of others and giving up your life for the sake of your devotion to Him. The Christian life, according to Christ, is costly. So again, these two components, and we'll see this filled out more as we move along, but let me repeat them. The Christian life has its motivation, unrivaled devotion to Christ. And the Christian life has as its pattern, Christ's own life and mission. I hope that didn't confuse you. I I flipped one and two from the first time I said it. If you didn't catch it, that's okay, because Jesus says it again and then again. So will we. We get more details later in this gospel. Uh, Because two times after this incident in chapter 8, this cycle of Jesus saying, this is my mission, the disciples responding with pride and misunderstanding, and then Jesus corrects their notions to give them a true idea of what discipleship is, the Christian life is, in light of his mission. That happens two more times. The same cycle. The next time is chapter 9. Look at it. Verse 30. Here's the second clear pronouncement of his death and resurrection in Mark. Just like he began to do in chapter 8. nine thirty. 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he, Jesus, was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill Him. When He is killed, after three days He will rise. Pretty plain. Death, resurrection. That's what I'm here to do. Death, resurrection. 32. But they did not understand the saying. They were afraid to ask Him. So instead of asking him or even trying to figure it out amongst themselves, their mind goes elsewhere. And Jesus perceives this and confronts them on it. 33, and when they came to Capernaum, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Busted. 34, but they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I love that detail, but they kept silent. They're like, oh... And he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Listen, your ideas of what and who is esteemed as great is wrong. Did you not hear me tell you what was going to happen to me? I'm going to be delivered over, I'm going to be killed, I am going to rise. That should inform your conception of what is great and praiseworthy. And how that mission of mine translates to you? Pursue servant of all status. Jesus expounds on this same idea one more time. The cycle repeats itself. Foretells his mission. Misunderstanding and pride. Correction of what the Christian life is to match his gospel mission. Look at 10:32, 10:32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Here it comes, a third time, saying, "See, we are going up to Jerusalem." And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Same song, next verse. This is my mission. This is the gospel of God. This is how the kingdom of God will be inaugurated. This is the path the everlasting King will be glorified and established by. This is how a people will be one for the King, who inherit the the kingdom with Him. This is how people will be transferred, as Paul puts it in Colossians 1, to the kingdom of the beloved Son. And the disciples respond with spiritual dullness, pride. In misunderstanding Christ's path, they misunderstand the Christian's path. Verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Verse 37, they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So on one level, they get it don't they? Jesus is the king. He's the Christ. He will receive dominion and glory and universal obedience, a kingdom that never ends. So he says, when you're in your glory, grant us these seats, would you? 38, Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So two word pictures in that verse, a cup to drink, a baptism to be baptized in, an immersion to receive. Both of those pictures refer to the suffering that Jesus is about to experience when he dies on a cross for the sins of his people, when he bears the wrath of God in their stead, being plunged into the waters of God's judgment, and drinking down the cup of God's wrath against sinners. So so in many ways, isn't his answer to James and John so similar to his answer to Peter? Peter, if you'll come after me, you take up the cross that I'm going to. James and John, if you come after me, you take the cup I'm going to drink. You Receive the baptism I'm about to be baptized with. If you will come after me, follow me to my sufferings and my sacrifice. Verse 39 they said to him, We are able. Uh, Probably a little too uh, glibly. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. The baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Jesus says, even though you don't know what you're saying, it will happen. Verse 40, but to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Presumably because those are seats they'd like to have as well. Verse 42, here's the corrective understanding of what the Christian life is about in light of Jesus' mission. Jesus called them to him and said to him, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So the world calculates greatness by those who possess and exercise authority. And then those who possess and exercise authority... uh, uh, exercise that authority, sorry to use that line again, it's hard to hear, I know, it's hard to say, Uh, they exercise that authority as if they really are great because they have it. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. This is stunning, and here's why. Remember who is saying this? This is the Son of God, the Christ, the Son of Man, the one who will be given all authority in heaven and on earth. And the one who will have all authority says, don't calculate greatness by who has authority. Jesus' greatness will not be most clearly seen by the authority he will possess what would it be displayed by instead? Verse 43, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. You see a ratcheting up. The great ones need to be servants of all. The first one needs to be the slave of all. On what basis, Jesus? How do you come up with that criteria? For greatness. 45. For, because, this is why it's that way. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give His life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man? Do you remember the description of the Son of Man in Daniel 7? The Son of Man who will come on clouds of glory and power who will receive from God dominion and a glory and a kingdom, he came to serve. This is even more astounding. The Son of Man, Daniel 7 says, whom all peoples, nations, and languages will serve, did not come to be served. The son of man whose dominion will not pass away came to give up his life as a ransom for others? If I ask you who will be first in the kingdom of God, uh, you would and should answer, Jesus, thank you, the tentative one. Will Jesus be first in the kingdom of God? (laughs) Yes, yes. God works all things so that in everything the Son will be preeminent. Well, Jesus says the one who will be first of all is the one who becomes the slave of all. We want to say Jesus is the first of all, but then do we want to reject the criteria by which Jesus says it should be determined, determined who is the greatest of all? Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven because he came to live as the slave of all. Is that shocking to hear? Can I say that? Isn't that Jesus' point here? The one who will be first will be the one who is slave of all. Why? Because even the Son of Man came to serve. the one who outranks all others in greatness. Would anyone like to submit another name for consideration of who will wear the blue ribbon of greatness in God's kingdom other than Jesus? No. Well, then don't reject also then, don't reject the standards that Jesus tells us God uses to esteem his son to that highest place. Philippians 2 says this, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of his humble obedience to the Father, because of his humble service toward others. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given to him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a slave. Now, we need to be careful here uh, because you might be tempted to undercut Jesus' words in Mark 10 by thinking something like this. Uh, okay, so Jesus shows his greatness because uh, though he is himself great by possessing great authority, he's willing to do something not great, serve for a time. No no. Living like a servant is the display of his greatness. So it's right to say Jesus came, he suffered for his people, but now that he's raised in glory, uh, having suffered once, he will never suffer again. But even though Christ's suffering was uh, the most sublime expression of servanthood the world will ever know, you cannot say, Christ came to serve his people, but then is raised in glory and in victory. And having served once, he will never serve again? No. No. Jesus is not saying here to James and John, listen, uh, the more you serve now, the less you'll have to in heaven. Uh, If you take on a slave of all kind of life, your reward will be not having to live that way. No! The thrones on Jesus' right and left hand are thrones. They're positions of authority. But they're not the reward of not having to serve. They are thrones of servanthood. Because the seat of power in between them is a throne of servanthood. Christ, the Lord of all, will reign His head over all forever, and He will serve His people. He will not serve instead of reign. He will serve and reign, or better, even serve as the one who reigns. In the Bible, something, I think, of the ideal relationship between a king and his people is given when there's advice given in 1 Kings 6 to King Rehoboam, who's in the line of David, David's grandson, and and listen to the counsel he gets. How should I, the king of God's people, uh, relate to God's people as their king? Here's good counsel. They said to him, if you, king, will be a servant to this people and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. This ideal will be realized in full when the king from David's line establishes the kingdom of God in all its glory. The kingdom of God will be ruled by a self-giving, servant-hearted king. And in response, we will be his servants forever. Won't that be wonderful? In Revelation, when the saints say, Hallelujah, Christ has begun his reign it's because it's so good to be under the rule of a king like this the kingdom of god will be ruled by a self-giving servant-hearted king and that's because that's who god is do you know the cross the cross does not obscure god's glory the cross reveals god's glory It doesn't conceal who God is because it's an act of sacrifice and service and self-giving as if that's beneath his dignity. No, it shows his dignity so clearly. Christ is the supreme revelation of God. He is the image of the invisible God. And when he came to serve and not to be served and to give his life, he came revealing God's character. Listen to this, I quote, Richard Bockham here. Since the exalted Christ is first the humiliated Christ, since it is indeed because of his self-denial that he is exalted, his humiliation belongs to the identity of God as truly as his exaltation does. The identity of God, who God is, is revealed as much in self-abasement and service As it is in exaltation and rule. The God who is high can also be low because God is God not in seeking his own advantage but in self giving. His self giving in abasement and service ensures that his sovereignty over all things is also a form of his self giving. Only the suffering servant can also be the Lord. He will reign as one who serves. There's a passage in Luke that makes this point in such an astonishing way. I, I've read this parable and, and at various times I'll come across this and I'll go look at a commentary on Luke because I think, am I reading this right? Luke twelve thirty five. Jesus tells them, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So that they may open the door to find him at once when he comes and knocks. Verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Here's the astonishing part. Truly I say to you, he, the master, will dress himself for service. And have them recline at the table. And he will come and serve them. Don't you want to bow the knee to this king? Don't you want to worship this God? Don't you want to follow one like this? Don't you want to be like this mighty Christ of God and taste and see his glory? Then you follow him in this path. Two basic principles I brought up earlier. The Christian life. It has as its motivation unrivaled devotion to this king, the Christ. And it has as its shape the pattern of Christ's own life and ministry, which is the gospel. So the Christian life then is a gospel-shaped life. What does gospel-shaped living look like? Well, there's only one kind of life that I know of, That Jesus explicitly tied to his death and resurrection. And it's the servant of all, slave of all kind of life. A life of costly self-sacrifice. That's why our big idea says a life shaped by the gospel looks like this. Living as the slave of all out of devotion to Christ. Um, The word gospel-centered has become a buzzword in the church today. Uh, And buzzwords frequently become meaningless words. Uh, A satire news service says this about the word gospel-centered news. In a grave warning to the Christian authors in religious bookstores around the world, Crossway Publishing announced Monday that the world's reserves of book titles containing the phrase gospel-centered are estimated to run dry by the year 2053. (laughs) Uh, Gospel-centered is thrown around too often without any reference to the actual gospel. People say, "Uh, I'm I'm doing this startup company and I have a really gospel-centered business model. Great, Uh, so what are you saying your business model has to do with the death and resurrection of Jesus? That's what the gospel is, right? Um, My community group, I love it. It's really gospel-centered. I hope so, but what exactly are you saying about your community group and how it's related to the death and resurrection of Jesus? I strive to have a gospel-centered home. Again, I hope you do, but in saying that, what are you you indicating that you're trying to do to uh, manage your domestic affairs in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus? Again, there is a kind of life that Jesus explicitly connected to the gospel of his death and resurrection. Slave of all, because of devotion to Christ. Or what about saying this? This is uh, maybe too close for comfort. Oh, it's, it's, it's such a gospel centered church. You know, if you type, if you Google Calvary Bible Church, First thing it says is a Calvary Bible, a gospel centered. It says some other adjectives with hyphens in them. So when we say that about ourselves, when we tell people that we're a gospel centered church, we should expect them maybe to say, Oh, so the members live like each other's slaves? Because they spend their lives sometimes at great personal cost and sacrifice. To pursue the good and good pleasure of each other. And they do that because they love Christ. Because they see how he first loved them. Or if we connect those same dots but just uh, have the water run the other direction through the pipe. We put it this way. Oh, That's a really gospel-centered church. Oh, so the members have come to know and believe the love God has for them in Christ. Manifest in his death and resurrection. And so they love Christ for it and give unrivaled devotion to Him. And therefore they follow Him in spending their lives, sometimes at great personal cost and sacrifice, to pursue the good and good pleasure of each other. The members live like each other's slaves. That is then a gospel-centered church. Uh, If a servant-of-all, slave-of-all mindset isn't characteristic of how we treat each other, then the only thing god entered means is we like to talk about the gospel. You know, servant-heartedness is seen as a virtue in the world. If you ask uh, on a college campus, what do you want to do? Fill in the blank. Why do you want to do it? I just want to help people. I want to help people. Close to, I want to serve people. But too often, they're doing that, chasing self-fulfillment. I want to help people because I want to look in the mirror and be able to treasure me. That's not the Christian life. The Christian gives his life to serve others because he treasures Christ. I will live like the slave of Christ's people because my God, my King, and my Savior did. And I desire more than anything to know Him, please Him, obey Him, serve Him, and be like Him. And so I will serve my brother and sister, even at great personal cost, as if dying on a cross for their benefit. And this shows the all-surpassing worth of Christ Himself because I do it out of devotion to Him. Uh, let me close by, by trying to sit, make the same point, same major point I've been trying to make with an illustration. Again, here, here are the points. The heart of the Christian life is devotion to Christ. The shape of the Christian life is servant of all, slave of all, cross-carrying. Okay, think about a river. Uh, the rushing water running through the channels... The driving force of the Christian life is our desire to know Christ and be known by Christ. It's our devotion to him, to gain Christ, just to follow Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us, who freed us from our sins and reconciled us to God. Unrivaled devotion to Christ is the river itself. It is the essence of the Christian life. But that river runs along a certain path. It's governed by its banks. And the banks of that river is the pattern that Christ gave us in his life and mission, the gospel. Devotion to Christ is supposed to be channeled in certain directions. Following in his steps, costly service to his people. Let me make the same illustration, but, but with a picture. Think of a river on a map. River on a map looks like a squiggly blue line, okay? So uh, imagine, though, a winding river on a big map, and the course of this river actually spells out in cursive, slave of all. Now, the water will powerfully and willingly flow through these channels, and that represents our unrivaled devotion to Christ, our following heart after Him. It shows the all-surpassing worth of knowing Him. Tasting and seeing His glory and goodness, that's what makes us want to go down this path. And the mighty force that, that eroded away the land to carve out that channel was the mission of Christ Himself, going to the cross to give His life as a ransom for many, for the forgiveness of sins. And so Christ crucified the King on a cross is what cut the canal that spells slave of all. The gospel is what gives the riverbed this shape. And so all who come after him, all who receive the forgiveness from God that he bought on the cross, all who will receive the free gift of righteousness that he offers, all who were called by him, that they might be with him. Uh, For those of you the decision to put your faith in Christ and follow Him is like a 10,000-gallon drum of water that's dumped into the head of that river. And then being dumped there, the path the water must go, and the path the water freely goes, is the gospel-shaped channel, slave of all. Because... We beheld the glory of God when we saw Christ take that path. So we become willing to suffer the loss of all things that we might gain Christ, know Him, belong to Him, be with Him in His kingdom, and even rule and serve under Him, yes, but also with Him. In Daniel 7, right after it says that the Son of Man will receive a kingdom which never ends, Later in the chapter, he says this, The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. And again, the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And again, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to, we expect him to say, to the Son of Man. The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And His, the Son of Man's kingdom, shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve Him and obey Him. Do you long for the kingdom of God to come? The Son of Man, the King of God's kingdom, what kind of king? Is he? He's a self-giving, self-sacrificing servant. And those who will inherit the kingdom with him, even who will reign with him as they are under his reign, must also be this type of person. There's a beautiful verse in Paul that I think captures this. You can write it down, 2 Corinthians 4 5. What Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4 5. What we proclaim is not ourselves, so self is no longer the motivating principle of my life. We proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves. For Jesus' sake. Isn't that beautiful? What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So the death and resurrection of Jesus gives us our marching orders as Christians. They've a the slave of all. Uh, but don't leave here thinking that the mission of Christ is just an example for us to follow. So much more. He came to serve. We follow him there. And to give his life as a ransom for many, we don't go there. Why? (laughs) Not that our life could ransom anyone anyway, but also no one else needs to. He did it. It's done. The cross is not Merely our example. The cross is our salvation. The cross is what wins for us the inheritance of the kingdom. The cross is what reconciles us to the king. Because the king who will reign as God, the man in the line of David, Jesus, God incarnate, the king who will reign as God over heaven and earth for all eternity died the death we deserve to die as sinners in our place, in our stead, drinking the cup of God's wrath because we rejected his kingship. And then he rose from the dead to show there's no more penalty left to pay for sin against this great king for all who will turn, turn from the ways that you have bowed the knee to self, And crown yourself as king. And instead of taking off that self-crown. Give it to Jesus. The king. It's called repentance. And then just put your trust. In what God has promised to accomplish. Through this king. And what his death means for you. Later in Mark's gospel. Jesus talks about his death again. Again. And he says it's for the forgiveness of sins. And all of this is for the purpose that instead of being crushed by God's king as his enemy when he comes, you can come with him as a joint heir. Because through his death, you can be reconciled that you might be with him. What good news! This is the gospel. Uh, So I proclaim to you in closing what Jesus proclaimed in opening His ministry. It says, He proclaimed the gospel of God and said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You can be saved. Confess Him as the Christ. And then seek to live, servant of all, slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. How great are your works, O God. And how wonderful it will be to receive our inheritance. To receive the kingdom that Christ has won. Because Christ's righteousness is credited to us who trust him. God, I thank you that you have made us in union. A faith union with the coming king over all heaven and earth forever. Thank you we can be reconciled despite our sins. God, if you should count iniquities, who could stand? How blessed is the man against whom God does not count his iniquity. God, may we be found among those blessed men. Make us all true confessors of Jesus as the Christ. Make us all proclaimers, not of self, but proclaimers of Jesus as Lord. And then make us proclaimers of ourselves as slaves of the brothers, for Jesus' sake. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.